Hello, and welcome to a podcast-exclusive episode, because yes, we just can't stop doing these for some reason. Um, it's our new th favorite thing on the Review Squared. So yes, a podcast-exclusive episode of the Review Squared. Welcome, and thank you for taking some extra time out of your week to go into a bit of election-related stuff. So we've been avoiding the topic of the 2020 election like the plague. We've done ex like two stories on it, and we hope to keep that number not much higher than that. However, we're going to add number three tonight. Um, so we're back. So we've got our guest, Sam Carliner. If you just want to introduce yourself really briefly for this. Yeah, I'm Sam Carliner, and I like talking about foreign policy. <laughs> Beautiful stuff. I'm Gideon Karaoke. I'm Ethan Pellin, and I also like talking about foreign policy. And I'm Haley Smilo, and I, I guess I know, but here I am today anyway. <laughs> and we're glad to have everyone on today. So I'm gonna, this is going to really be Sam's like moment to lead, because for some reason, every guest we have on has to take a lead on something. And today, it's going to be sort of leading us through the candidates and foreign policy. So... Today, the day we're recording this is October 30th. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, so we're recording this on October 30th, the Friday right before the election. And of course, uh, the election's on Tuesday, the 3rd of November. And by this point, most of you have probably voted because most of you are Arizonans and probably use absentee ballots. So congratulations. Thanks for voting. Uh, and... However, whoever wins, there's going to be some foreign policy going on. Uh, the United States is involved in a lot of stuff. So, Sam, let's just get into it. So what are some of the primary differences between Trump and Biden on foreign policy? So the thing is, my take is that they're not at all different enough. Uh, and I don't think that's a case of the candidates. I think that just in general, America follows a pattern with its foreign policy being very interventionist. I, they, they do have their differences. Uh, Trump has been chaotic. Uh, he has used a lot of economic warfare, um, you know, starting a very not well thought out trade war with China. And uh, most significantly, in my opinion, his love of sanctions. He has, during the pandemic, been sanctioning Venezuela, been sanctioning Iran. Uh, recently, he sent troops to Syria. Uh, and then in terms of the chaotic front, uh, I mean, his drone assassination of Iranian General, General Qasem Soleimani, I think was maybe his biggest defining moment in foreign policy and uh, not in a good way it was it was very like ill thought out uh and risky move to pull and not a good move to pull for um for the region for uh in my opinion respecting international law uh so trump has been a break from the typical um, typical interventionist approach that America sees in that you never know where he's going to go. Because one second he's talking about how he wants to remove troops from Afghanistan and Germany, uh, but then he's also sending troops to Syria and, and a drone assassinating generals and using very, very uh, violent sanctions uh, on countries that don't really align with U.S. Uh, interests. Biden, on the other hand, is uh, very known for being one of the biggest supporters of the invasion of Iraq, which is, uh, many have said, the biggest foreign policy blunder uh, of this century. Uh, and he has not really been apologetic. And I think if you watched the debates, he, in many cases, I think aims to be to the right of Trump on foreign policy, uh, saying that Trump is not strong enough on China. Now, of course, Trump says Biden isn't strong enough on China, but then also uh, Biden saying Trump isn't strong enough on Russia, on Iran, 
on North Korea. They have their different, like, tough on other countries looks like, but they generally overlap in terms of this idea that we need to be tough on the countries that don't align with what we're doing uh, in order to protect our national security, which that I won't get too much into my takes on that just now, but I have a whole lot of takes on that as well. Um, if I may do a little bit of, a little bit of like um, pushback, but also a little bit of support. Um, I would agree with Sam that foreign policy is probably the most static um, aspect of American policy. Um, if you look, you know, you, you generally have, you know, you have the Foreign Service, you have the State Department, you have the DOD, and that's stock full of, of what are apolitical or non-political positions and long career standing people. So for the most part, regardless of the administration, if you have a Biden administration or a Trump administration, a Bernie Sanders, even a Bernie Sanders administration, most of the people in there are the same. Um, and so that generally, you know, sort of makes it to where the, the changes that a president makes oftentimes is less so in terms of like the broader strategy and more so in terms of the, the style. And so where I might do a little pushback on Sam's is that um, I, th I will agree with him that Biden and in general, the Democrats in general, will try to prove their, their um, national security chops. They, so they'll try to say that they're actually tougher than the Republicans. But I think if you look at what Biden Biden's actual policies, the ones you, if if you follow them, we don't know. But if you look at his, his policies on how he wants to handle um, our adversaries, he probably will take a bit more of a conciliatory approach. Um, I don't know about Russia. Um, but And then when it comes to countries that are not our adversaries but are our allies, I think Biden will be generally less brash and more open to working with them. And he definitely will not be constantly... Um, wrecking relationships with allies. So I think I think the, the biggest change you'll probably see from a uh, Trump to a Biden administration will be a very significant change in style um, and a very significant change in how we deal with our allies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think that's all, those are all really important and good points into the uh, research I've done on it. Uh, pretty much lines up with what I've seen. But uh, of course, if we're wrong, feel free to contact us. We have social media. Um, but uh, anyways, I guess the big question, is, I got two really big questions. But I'll ask big question number one first. What will, will there be any fundamental changes to the Trump foreign policy if Trump gets a second term? Yeah, you go first, because that's a, that's a big question. I will say yes, and very much so yes. Now, if you look, um, a reason why I pointed out that most of the, most of the foreign policy world is career is and non-political positions is because this administration is pursuing a very significant change to how people are hired. Um, so there's an executive order that has to go, that has to be followed and go into effect by January 19th. Convenient, <laughs> so it has to go into effect regardless of who wins the election. So what this does is it reclassifies, it can reclassify basically any position in the government into being political positions. So they're appointed positions and they can be much more easily fired. So this is essentially reclassifying huge numbers of federal employees as Schedule F. This means that they can't, um, they can't participate in the labor unions in the, uh, the federal sector. They are at will. So they, they have much less employment protections and so they can be more easily removed. And in my view, the reason why the Trump administration is pursuing this is because they still don't feel that the that this the foreign policy world and the federal government and bureaucracy in general is aligned with them on a lot of the policies that they're wanting to implement. And so if they're able to, to implement this change, they can potentially get rid of huge numbers of State Department employees and DOD employees in order to put in more loyalists. Also, Trump has also said that he wants to get rid of um, – he wants to get rid of the current CIA director and, to my recollection, the current defense secretary. And in, in his words, saying that he wants more loyal people there. Um, so this would mean that Gina Haspel, who is the current CIA director, and Mark Esper, who's the current defense secretary, would be removed from their positions in favor of even more um, pro-Trump individuals. 
So he's going to have a lot more um, people aligned with him in the foreign policy area. And he's probably going to become increasingly, as Sam, Sam detailed, um, increasingly erratic and increasingly relying upon um, unilateral action. If you just look at what's happened last year, State Department has said that they're considering um, labeling Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and other in international organizations as anti-Semitic. He has essentially unilaterally recognized um, multiple Israeli territorial holdings, and also, in a sense, just increasingly, U.S. is just doing things without anyone else. So that, that that's, and I think that trend will continue uh, if Trump if Trump wins. Yeah, and to sort of add on to that, because I think that's a really good thing for people to understand, because we've been seeing uh, a lot of, uh, to the extent that Trump has campaigned, I think he's been a little weak on campaigning, but uh, to the extent he has, he seems to be painting himself as an anti-war, anti-interventionist president. And people both on the right and the left are falling for that, are suggesting that uh, in contrast to Biden, he is, you know, ending wars, withdrawing troops, not getting involved in other countries' businesses. But if you actually look at his record, he's been a horribly pro-war president. Uh, and and as I, I think there are criticisms to make of the approach the U.S. has taken in the past in terms of its allies, uh, in terms of the structures it goes through, I, I think that those aren't, those are sort of um, ways of masking uh, generally bad pro-war policies, but there's at least a structure to them. And I, I think people are falling for this idea that because Trump isn't aligning with the typical structure, it means that he's not aligning with the typical uh push to get involved in things. And I think a really important thing that people are going to need to do if we see a, if we see either a Biden or a Trump presidency, but uh, certainly if we see a Trump presidency is not fall for what he's painting himself as, which is someone who is, you know, not getting involved in other conflicts. He we have seen him get involved in conflicts. I mean, like I said, I think the sanctions are a really big thing. Uh, he, during a global pandemic, has been increasing sanctions on various countries. Uh, he attempted, he had a botched uh, attempt at a coup on Venezuela. He, as I said, assassinated an Iranian general. Uh, and so I, I agree with Ethan that, uh, he certainly seems to be pursuing uh, people who will be more loyal to him. Uh, and I, I don't really trust the CIA. I don't really trust the State Department to be good voices of reason necessarily, but I don't think that removing them and replacing them with people who are loyal to you necessarily means that you are taking an anti-interventionist approach. I think it just means that you are taking an interventionist approach uh, in a new way. And I think it's going to be important for people to keep tabs on that and not just assume that because he's not listening to everything uh, these generals say, that means that he's not going to war and starting conflicts that he is not going to do a good job at, uh, uh, you know, letting not get out of hand. And I think since Afghanistan and Iraq have so dominated, and, and rightfully so, since they were they were two, two are two, they were wars in which the U.S. had actively engaged troops on the ground. The the way we think about you know whether or not a foreign policy is is aggressive or or intervention is if there are actual troops on the ground, but it can also just as Hamas rightfully said can take place through sanctions. And I wanted you know. Trump has been probably the most maximal president um, in term when it comes to aggressive foreign policy. You know, this administration is consistently always says maximum pressure. You'll hear that so often. Maximum pressure with Cuba, maximum pressure with Iran, maximum pressure with Venezuela. And essentially the way they deal with people that are our adversaries is maximum pressure and very in constantly escalating. And if you look at what 
Sam talked about with the Iranian general, the U.S. is very lucky that that did not spiral out of control. I mean, the U.S. has been interventionist in the past, but we had, to my knowledge, had not actively, like, blatantly gone in and assassinated another another nation's um, another nation's top general on another nation's soil without that nation's permission. And so, in a sense, that that could have spiraled. It just because you know, just because it didn't spiral into outright war with Iran doesn't mean that Trump is not aggressive and not um, interventionist. And I would also I would add to that that I think the reason it, it did not spiral to spiral into all-out war with Iran isn't actually a significant sign of uh, Trump uh, not letting it get out of hand. It's that Iran has everything to lose from going, maybe not everything to lose, but Iran doesn't, would be insane to want to go to war with the U.S. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that we defeat them easily as uh, maybe Trump supporters and pro war with Iran supporters might suggest, but it would be devastating for them. Uh, and I think that they rightfully uh, didn't escalate the conflict because because it would have been really bad for them. I mean, they look at what they're going through uh, with our sanctions without escalating things. Uh, and one thing that I think was really funny at the time, not funny, but, you know, uh, is that and I think this highlights where the right and Trump supporters have such a misunderstanding of foreign policy, is that Iran at the time retaliated to the U.S.'s assassination by firing uh, what were very seemingly purposefully not that direct missiles on a U.S. military base. Uh, and it injured, I think, like, I think it gave, like, concussions to some of the troops inside, but overall, it basically missed. It didn't really cause significant damage. And I remember, like, Ben Shapiro, and I th- I think even Pete Trump, for people in this time, were, were, but certainly Ben Shapiro and a lot of, like, the right-wing media were like, Iran is retaliating, and they couldn't even aim correctly, which shows just such a lack of understanding on how foreign policy works uh, because if you really understand how these things work, the, I mean, you can't say exactly with certainty what Iran's uh, intentions were, but the likely scenario is that is a warning shot. That is what I think any smart country in Iran's position would do, which is to fire missiles to say, look, we're not, we're not just going to let you assassinate our general, but it still avoids doing anything that could put them right into uh, war with the U.S. And uh, it, that didn't really get a lot of, I think, the attention it deserved at the time that it happened, but I think it really perfectly highlighted how lacking in understanding this administration and supporters of it are on what constitutes war. I mean, even the assassination of Soleimani I think that their whole thinking was they didn't realize that that would be taken as an act of war. They thought it was just, we'll assassinate this general. Uh, and so I think that's such a that's such a concerning thing about the Trump administration is that while he may not have some of the understanding uh, of past very uh, dangerously pro-war presidents who like who know how to pursue these things well he i that is people paint that as a benefit and in some ways i think it may be that he's not competent enough to truly go through with a a conflict a prolonged conflict with another country but it's also scary to realize that you have a president who has no clue what he's doing in terms of foreign policy and is just impulsive about it uh i i i don't know how much we're gonna go into trump i do want to talk about biden but i I don't know. That just sums up my thoughts on on what Trump foreign policy would look like, and and at, at, again, as Ethan said, probably even more so uh, if he's reelected. That he really he doesn't know what he's doing. He clearly has no interest in it. Uh, and while I think that there's very good criticisms to make of the violent intent of a lot of the people who pushed back against his approach to foreign policy. 
they there's still just as many criticisms you can make as the people he's replacing them with who maybe may not be as intentionally plotting but certainly are not safe people to be had advising him on uh issues of how to deal with conflict with other countries yeah uh, i i think and to go to say a little something on the soleimani situation like uh, the uh, the interpretation among some people here in the states that it's oh it's not an act of war it's like wars have been been fought for far 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 less than assassinating. And he was pretty popular general. with the Iranian people too. Like it's not even like it's not even like he was some just person. Uh, I mean I think the equivalent was basically if you assassinated some like. If Iran had assassinated some no-name, you know, horrible Republican that I've never heard of and that most people have never heard of, because, you know, there's a lot of those. If they assassinated them versus if they had assassinated, um, I don't know. Uh, I think generally the, the one that was brought up was if, like, could have been the equivalent of assassinating General Mattis. Yeah, yeah, and he's and he's like beloved by people in the military to a point where it's it's reflected negatively on Trump when he goes after him. So yeah, it, it, it's that. Whereas this was a very well-respected, popular person. I mean, he played a big role in defeating ISIS. Uh, I believe it was ISIS, one one of the threats in the region. Uh, so it was, it, if that, if the, you don't think that's an act of war, then you clearly don't know what an act of war looks like, or you just don't care. Yeah. No, and just uh, because we didn't go to war doesn't mean it wasn't a mistake. And like, exactly. just the cause benefit of it too, was that like, is that, you know, the, the whole point was to try to neutralize um, the IRGC, the Islamic uh, Islamic Republic and sorry, the Revolutionary Guard, the um, basically the the militant sort of managing group that Iran has that manages the proxy network. But as we've seen, you know, we, we like take this enormous risk, fascinating, and the benefit has been that they just replaced him with deputy, and Iran is still managing a vast network of proxy groups. So we just take these huge risks, and there's almost no benefit besides removing yeah. this one individual. Yeah, that was a messy case, and definitely one of the exact. Yeah, I truly I agree with the panelists. Like, just an example of an erratic foreign policy move that apparently we might be seeing more of if Trump is reelected. Um, I do want to move on to. Uh, Biden, though, that's my second big question is on Biden. So there's a lot of things that I can that we can start the conversation on as far as Joe Biden and foreign policy, given he's been in politics for a while and very when he was in the Senate, very involved in foreign affairs. But I think an important one to start on is how do you think our allies are going to receive Joe Biden and how exactly would the next four years look like under Joe Biden and our relationship with our allies? I think the day that Joe Biden is inaugurated on January 21st, that pretty much all of Europe is going to breathe a sigh of relief. Um, I don't know about, I, I think that the reactions will be more mixed throughout the rest of the world. But I think in general, countries will probably see Biden as, as um, an improvement. I, I think that, I will say, I think that while they will see him as an improvement, I don't think that guarantees that he immediately sets up relationships with them again. I mean, I, I, knowing him, he will pursue that, and he'll probably do what would constitute a good job at that. Uh, but I also think that, um, the, I mean, the general take I've been getting from uh, reading what foreign policy people say is that the fact that Trump was elected president makes uh, makes it clear that a lot of countries uh, cannot rely on the U.S. to give them the same thing that it used to. Uh, and also we're seeing just across the board uh, a lot of countries becoming more populist and uh, sort of pursuing the same route 
that Trump has of uh, not relying on alliances too much. Uh, so I do, I, I do agree. I see no scenario where uh, our allies look at Biden as, um, I see no scenario where they're not breathing a sigh of relief once Trump is gone and you have uh, Biden uh, in a presidency. But I, I do think that there's going to be a long road to when the U.S., uh, how much the U.S. can patch things up post-Trump. And I also think there's another thing that there are countries that want to be and have been, you know, relying more on Russia and China in terms of uh, alliances uh, in place of a U.S. that has not necessarily been the best for their interests. Uh, And I think that that's certainly a thing that we may see of. I I mean, we're already seeing it that uh, China... Uh, and uh, aligned with Russia and Iran are becoming a force in the world, uh, whether you, you agree with them or not. The, I don't think you can deny that they have their own benefits to a lot of countries that would have prior uh, been aligned with the U.S. Uh, and, and I think that's part of why the U.S is so concerned about those countries is because know that they pose um, a significant potential for our previous alliances to maybe gravitate to. That's it. I will... Um... Go ahead, Ethan. Oh, no, 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 no. If, you, if you have a question, um, that's fine. So as you mentioned, we did burn, or Trump burned a couple of potential bridges. And so the question is, is what is America giving that other countries can't give at the moment? And there it becomes that, is there really anything America has over China, Russia, whoever, and countries besides maybe political views, I'd be interested to hear what you guys have to think about that. Um, I, I guess I can, I can I'll, I'll answer that, but I also will respond a little bit to, to some of what um, Sam was talking about. Um, I think I, I definitely agree. So Russia and China and Iran, to a lesser extent, are um, up and coming powers. But I would say that Russia is a very different one than China, um, and that if we want to look at who really is the main competitor, the main country that really the U.S. Um, is generally concerned about is China, because Russia is a decaying power. Um, it has been for a long time since the Soviet Union fell, and they're just they're mainly trying to manage the decay. They're trying to make sure that countries that were form- that are, are aligned with them or who were formerly aligned stay at least somewhat within their orbit and are trying to use their military to do so. But they don't have the economy or really the, the trade network or the diplomatic prowess to really advance beyond like, you know, countries that are right directly on their border. Now, if you compare that to China, um, China is a growing power and a massively expanding one um, when it comes to its when it comes to its economy, when it comes to its diplomatic prowess. So, just wanted to um, point that out that they're two very different um, sorts of um, powers. Yeah, and I appreciate that because I was I, I I my take is that uh, Russia still is in a it's in a region. It's such a massive country that it will always be relevant to uh, international affairs in some way. But I I agree with you that China and Russia are very, very different things uh, in terms of why people would be interested in uh, having relationships with their leaders. Yeah. Um, And and sort of to um, respond to um, Haley's question, um, China's pitch or the the way that it's sort of, it's been... um, it has a very specifically specifically developed global standing um, and message. Um, one that a relies they still very much um, so call call and believe themselves to be a, a member of the global south um, and to be a developing country. Um, and they try to they, in a sense they try to push themselves as an alternative to as an alternative to the West. Um, relying on countries' past misgivings and the sort of the exploitation that's taken place in those countries to essentially say, you know, look at what the United States and Europe and the sort of the the 
original order, the previous one, um, did to your countries in terms of corporations coming in and destroying your lands and taking, um, taking your resources and not respecting your governments. We, on the other hand, respect your sovereignty and are willing to invest in your country. Um, and so they portray themselves as more generous and more respecting of countries' internal dynamics, if that, so that, that's um, their pitch. Um, in the US, to be honest, for the most part under this administration, um, and this is really, before this, um, the US was still thinking that um, trade and diplomatic relations with China would reform them to become more, 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 more of a uh, liberal democracy um, to be more, or at least more aligned with the U.S. and Europe in general, but the Trump administration um, shifted that to to see China as a threat. But for the most part, the U.S. just tries to use its diplomatic weight and really isn't offering a lot to countries. They, you know, they primarily say China's a threat, stay with us, rather than you know the U.S. really isn't doing a lot of investment. The U.S. isn't really, in a sense, giving these countries good deals. It's, it's mostly trade. China offers primarily direct investment. The U.S. offers trade. Um, and so I think if you look at some of Biden's platform, there's a little bit more of a shift, in my view, not enough. Um, but there is more of a shift to direct investment, to trying to give these countries an alternative to China. And also saying, in a sense, that the U.S., you want to be with the good countries, the countries that, you know, that believe in democracy, that believe in human rights. Although, of course, in my view, it's increasingly very difficult to do so because the U.S., quite frankly, isn't respecting its democracy at home and historically has not respected democracies in general abroad. I don't think I have any disagreements with that. Um, trying to think of what you said, I don't think there was anything that I particularly could push back on. Um, I mean, I guess as a follow-up, I would say that, um, I don't know, my personal take is that the U.S. should be working with China. Uh, I mean, I know this started as a question about what our allies would go to, but I, I think if we're bringing up China into the conversation, Biden, Trump, I don't know, say third-party person wins, who is say 2024, the U.S. should recognize that China is a rising power, is significant on the world stage, uh, and in many ways is a great partner for working with. Uh, I think particularly if the US and China tackled climate change together, uh, they could make a lot of progress in terms of, I mean, I know the whole thing is that uh, technology, they're big competitors, but I think that, uh, I. We're talking, of course, about an ideal scenario where the U.S. and China suddenly stop viewing each other as a threat and are able to fully trust each other working together on projects. We're never going to see that, I don't think, um, because I, I mean, that's, that's not how world powers tend to work historically. But I think that is what everyone in foreign policy should be pushing for. Uh, I mean, I just... I. I think that, of course, there's going to be some expansion that China does that uh, I think there's valid criticism of. Uh, I don't think it's the US's place to be criticizing China in terms of that because we have, we're not much different. We've done our own, as Ethan pointed out, sabotaging of democracies abroad, uh, expanding our influence abroad in forceful measures, uh, in many cases, more, far more forceful than China. Uh, and I think this this idea that China doesn't have as much of a claim to a certain region region and influence of certain areas as the U.S. Uh, is not so much based in any concern for the countries that China is trying to expand its inner regions where it's trying to expand its influence. It's out of concern that the U.S. is losing influence. And I think that the, at this point, uh, I, 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 just, I just don't see any scenario where the U.S. Uh, trying to start a territorial uh, claiming uh, conflict with China or 
or push back against it uh, benefits anyone. China has China is in a place where it's established, and rather than trying to fight that, we should be working on how can we incorporate that into the best ways to maintain uh, global peace and working with this very uh, developed, uh, you know, very influential in technology and a lot of other uh, infrastructure country uh, on how do we solve problems in the world. Uh, again, history doesn't tend to work that way, but I don't think that's any reason to not try to advocate for closer, a closer and more trusting uh, and collaborative relationship with China. I think yeah. that, um, oh, getting you had a question? No, 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 or, or uh, go, go ahead, Ethan. Just just uh, continue on with what you're saying. Mine can wait, mine was a uh, change. Okay, um, when it comes to, uh, just going back to try to um, also talk a little bit about Biden again. Um, I think that Biden is also going to, and it's actually is going to be kind of similar to Trump in this regard, um, is going to try to work on a, like a personal relationship with Xi Jinping. Um, Biden very much so is a guy of relationships. Um, he likes to build relationships with other politicians. That's always been his um, his doctrine, I guess. And so I definitely anticipate that he'll try to rely on that when it comes to, to working with China. Um, but I also don't think that there will be like a, a fundamental shift um, probably looking more to work with other countries when countering China. Um, so not as unilateral, but still, you know, I think this administration has forced a reset on China policy and the circumstances have um, to where we're not going to go back to like the Obama trying to open China or or be friends with them um, just because of the, the current circumstances. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. I do want to, since, since you bring up Biden uh, and relationships, I do want to talk about a few countries and what his, you know, probable positions on them are going to be. Uh, and I want to start with something that I'm, of course, uh, a bit skeptical on. Uh, but that if, if it plays out, I would be supportive of, which is that, uh, as I was saying before we started recording, Marco Rubio tweeted a New York Times article uh, that I have not read because I don't have a New York Times subscription. So, of course, take everything I say on this with a grain of salt, knowing that I didn't actually do the reading. But based on the headline and based on Marco Rubio's complaints, uh, it appears that Biden is open to the idea of working with Maduro in some way, president of Venezuela, which I think would be great. As, as I've said many times already, this is that Venezuela is one of the countries that Trump has been particularly aggressive on when it comes to uh, sanctions. Uh, the US has a long history of being aggressive towards Venezuela. And the I guess general criticism of, of Maduro is sort of the boogeyman uh, that you have with any Latin American country that uh, tries to secure its resources for itself. Now, there are people who say Venezuela is socialist. I don't agree that they are socialist, but I do uh, understand why some people would say that. This, this is a country that made enemies with the United States because it tried to keep a claim to its own resources uh, rather than allow US companies to exploit them. So for context, that's, that's sort of the gist of where this whole uh, uh, conflict with Venezuela and the US has come from. It's such an awful, conflict. Uh, I mean, typical, but, you know, not a thing that I think really Americans benefit from supporting. Certainly Venezuelans don't benefit from us having a conflict with them. Uh, so I just think it's really interesting because I was never expecting the U.S. to uh, let go of this uh, grudge with Venezuela. Uh, and I think this is really good. I think that uh, the, the, I, I think that the U.S., uh, absolutely 
should respect Venezuela's sovereignty, but I don't agree with the tape, take that I see of a lot of uh, American supporters of Maduro that uh, he is free of criticism. I think there are um, criticisms to be made of him, but I think those are to be made by the Venezuelan people free of influence from a very, very strong and influential country that historically has not benefited uh, Latin American countries when it gets involved in their affairs. Uh, so this is sort of a, this is sort of a, I'm just really interested to see where the conversation of U.S. relations with Venezuela and just Venezuelan politics play out if the U.S. finally drops this long history of not respecting the sovereignty and pushing for regime change there. I, I think it's full of possibility, could be good, could be bad, but I, I just think that's a really interesting development that I would love to see more of under the Biden administration, rather than what is currently the, the general history of us just sanctioning them and uh, preventing them from having a place within international affairs. Um, and to, to uh, talk about uh, Venezuela, because I, I did read the article that you mentioned. I, I was able to find it. Um, since ASU students get free New York Times subscriptions. I was, so I was going through the article, and it seems that Biden is indicating that he wants to step back the maximum pressure, as I mentioned. Um, that instead of, instead of like just sanctioning and sanctioning and sanctioning and just trying to essentially entirely cut them off, um, rather he wants to try to work with them to transition them to a better uh, and I, a better system or a better, not better system, but um, one in which doesn't see maybe as repressive of a government in power. Um, and I think that's actually, it, it's more in line with what Obama pursued later in his, um, in his Latin America policy where he pursued the um, opening uh, rela normal relations with uh, Cuba and I ending the trade embargo. What? I was going to say that if you didn't, because that was oh, like the first okay. thing that came to mind. Yeah. Um, you know, so not necessarily, again, it's not like, you know, suddenly like that, you know, Biden is going to be totally respecting and not pursuing sanctions and things like that. But what you will probably see is a willingness to work with them um, and not just essentially, you know, if a country doesn't align with us, we cut them off. And I think that that really uh, is in a way it is very similar to Cuba because I think it's the, the thinking if I were if I were in this position uh, my thinking would be uh, I mean my thinking in the first place would never be to sanction them in the first place but but like if I'm putting myself in Biden's shoes or, or Obama's shoes at the time yeah after a country just resists your attempts to sabotage it for so long you just stop, like, you just stop. Like, what do you do? Like, we, like, the U.S. has tried to um, uh, force regime change in Venezuela so many times, and it's never worked. Uh, and similarly, I mean, how many times did the CIA try to assassinate Fidel Castro before eventually the United States decides, okay, let's take a different approach? Like, I think that Venezuela uh, is, is a safe country. Uh, I mean, not that not that I think that you know Iran or China pose the threat to the U.S. that a lot of people claim they do, uh, but those are at least countries that could really shift things a lot uh, if if they were interested in it. I don't think Venezuela is like Ven Venezuela just does its own thing. Um, uh, Venezuela is primarily, a, in my view, at least, a threat to its own population and to the populations in immediate. Um, not because it's going to like go out and like militarily invade Brazil, which that would be stupid for them to do, but um, it, in the sense that by becoming so unstable that they collapse the that the number of refugees and the the potential then for criminal organizations to develop there, and less so in terms of Venezuela's like not really fomenting revolutionary groups in the region, and, and really, quite frankly, Cuba isn't either. Whereas if you compare that to Iran, Iran is actively um, developing proxy groups and managing a network of those throughout the region. Yeah. Um, um, and, oh, sorry, no, you talk. Uh, no, go, go ahead. 
Yeah, I, I mean, and I, I think that's a, a valid point. And yeah, Venezuela, like, there's just, there's, again, there's there's no point for the U.S. to take such a, an aggressive approach, in my opinion, uh, on any country, but particularly, like, Venezuela is, is just such a, it feels like just a personal vendetta. So I think it makes sense for, um, for us to stop taking the sanctioning and closing it off from everyone approach. Uh, and I, I, I sort of want to transition based on something you said. So before I do that, do you just have any other things you want to add to Venezuela? Uh, one more thing um, is that my, most of my criticism when it comes to, to their policy is its ineffectiveness. And and just the historicism of it. Like, look, Cuba has been under embargo for 58 years, and they haven't changed. And Venezuela has been as uh, under consistent sanctions and maximum pressure campaign since essentially Trump came to office. And quite frankly, Maduro is in a more secure position and is more centralized power than he was before. He's in a better position than he was four years ago, at least when it comes to his power in the country. But at the same time, what these sanctions and just the maximum pressure is causing is an enormous amount of negative externalities on the Venezuelan people, the people that we are trying to help, or at least this administration says that they're trying to help. Um, and so you're having this amount, enormous amount of um, potentially destabilizing effect in the region, and it's not working. Yeah, and Gideon, is it cool if I like shift the conversation? Because I just had a that that makes me think of like a whole different topic that yeah, I no. think is feel free. Okay, I want to hear it entirely to what you said. I think of North Korea, and I think of the fact that the U.S. has also where, where you say that the U uh, the U.S. sanctioning Venezuela and pursuing this policy has only made Maduro stronger. Uh, I think you could say the same thing about North Korea, and I really want to talk about that because that's uh, generally a criticism Trump has received is his uh, discussions with Kim Jong-un. Now, I think Trump, there's a lot to criticize about his discussions. I think he didn't really do anything significant, uh, and it was very clearly, at least in my opinion, just because he wanted to get a photo op and say that he was the person who opened up relations with North Korea. But I don't think the act of, I don't think anyone in their right mind should be criticizing the uh, pursuing uh, a uh, ending the Korean War, pursuing uh, bringing North Korea into more of a position to function on the world stage. Uh, and I, I think that we really need, America needs to uh, stop viewing North Korea as a villain, similarly to how Biden seems to be willing to work with Venezuela. And what's disappointing is that, uh, I mean, just based on the debate, uh, he doesn't seem open to that. I mean, he was very, very critical of Trump, Trump's uh meeting and, and relationship with Kim Jong-un uh, and not for any of the valid reasons that you could suggest. Uh, I mean, I think that th this started with, I believe, Bush, this whole idea that North Korea is, is an axis of evil and there's no working with them whatsoever. And that has only, that has only um, given uh, the government more power over citizens. It has only made them more likely to develop nuclear technology, which I don't particularly pose as a threat, but in general, I don't think, like, I think the less nuclear weapons we have around, the better. Um, and uh, it also it also doesn't, sanctioning, sanctioning takes a massive toll on uh, the North Korean people. Now, I, I certainly think there's, uh, I think more than a lot of other governments uh, that the U.S. tends to have a harsh stance towards. North Korea is one of the ones that you very, very well could uh, criticize more. Uh, 
uh, and validly. But I, even then, I just don't see any benefit that comes from sanctioning them, from refusing to work with them. Uh, and I, I yeah, I, I wanted to bring up North Korea because uh, I think I would love to see Biden take the same approach to North Korea as he seems to be taking towards Venezuela. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be on his mind. And I'm interested in what in what you would think of that, and uh, if if it could develop and if it should develop. It's it's definitely a valid transition um, when you're in terms of going from talking about the Venezuela policy to Biden on North Korea. Because again, you know that came up directly in the debate. I will say, I. Don't, I think that was much more so a political calculation and less so in an actual policy one, because it is part of, um, you know, in general, a lot of the criticism towards Trump has been he's too friendly to dictators. And so if that because that came up in debate, I think Biden really saw this as an opportunity to say, look, he, you know, Trump's around with the most repressive dictator in the world. Um, I don't think that's actually very indicative of his willingness to pursue a different policy. Um, and in general, I would say, although and I will say. I think North Korea's our policy towards North Korea has been very much so in line with what our policy towards Cuba of isolation for a very very long time. Um, and I actually have a kind of a unique pers- uh, view on it, which is I think South Korea has actually been doing the best job of managing this, um, and that the most improvements been made is in the last three years of letting South Korea slowly try to work with the North Korean government on ending the conflict, on reforming the border issues and sort of transitioning North Korea maybe towards being less repressive um, because of the, connect- the historical connections between the two countries. And quite frankly, South Korea's just seems to be doing a better job than we have. You know, we've had 50 years, they've had three and have seemed to have made more improvements. Um, North Korea's, I would say, is definitely more of a threat than Venezuela. Um, again, though, the, the calculation always is that their nuclear weapons are very much so defensive tools um, in terms of protecting the regime. Although there is always a risk in either that they become so unstable that they collapse and then what do you do if a collapsing country has nuclear weapons? Or you know, you have a more, you have a erratic leader who comes to power or a dumb decisions made within the, within the government to deploy their nuclear weapons. But they do know that of course, if they ever do that, North Korea no longer exists. Um, so I, I think that I think it's still best to be trying to let the South Koreans take the lead on trying to um, move towards actually ending the protracted conflict. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I, I will say that while, while I agree that that's it's certainly more of a political calculation, but I still think the political account calculation has consequences. Like I do think that. At this point, a lot of the anti-North Korea rhetoric feeds into anti-North Korea policy uh, because I, I think in generally what I, I think there's needs to be a consideration of what citizens think of relationships with a country, uh, not not in terms of that. Um, like I think someone it, it, someone now if a president if the, if the thinking is that how the you work with like if Biden is criticizing Trump for working with North Korea then I don't see how he goes and uh, and takes a not hardline stance on North Korea without receiving criticism like like I, I do think there of course needs to be a distinction between what someone's saying and what someone's policy is but I I, I do also think that in general uh, America and particularly political leaders should be dropping this um, big scary North Korea threat talk because I, I I don't think it does anything other than garner support for a hardline stance uh, of keeping them out of the world stage. Yeah, uh, those are both very interesting takes and perspectives uh, that I've actually never even heard on North Korea, uh, that, as that's an issue that 
tend the consensus has generally fallen in this country on yes, let's go after Kim Jong Un. So I, I think those are both very interesting perspectives from both Sam well, and from both you, Sam and Ethan. If I can actually hop onto that, I and I do think that actually sort of goes to the point I was trying to make, which is that regardless of what American policy is on North Korea, it is it is disappointing that generally the conversation is reduced to North Korea is bad, the US shouldn't like them. Like that's not how we should be viewing foreign policy and discussing it. Yeah, agreed. It's a, a little more complicated than that. And anyways, uh, uh, I don't want to make this episode last forever. So I do want to do one last one that I think is worth talking about just because I, I think it's a very interesting intersection of bizarre American domestic politics and our foreign policy too. It's one that kind of came up in passing during the Venezuela conversation. Let's talk Cuba um, because we did get a little into that, but I think there's an interesting intersection between that and domestic politics on, on a, that I don't think exists on most foreign policy issues. So do either of you want to get into that? Like just to, yeah, because I'm curious as to what you think Biden v. Trump on like Cuba, because Biden was a part of the Obama administration, which did normalize relations and Trump has sort of retreated from that. Um, it's again, it's very much a political calculation. Um, the, the, there's a very large Cuban exile population, especially in Florida, um, which is a swing state. So generally, most campaigns will try to do as much as they can to court that vote. Um, and that oftentimes in, informs significant aspects of how we deal with Cuba. Um, I mean, I, I would argue that in general, I mean, you, you sort of had a general conservative opposition to normalizing trade relations with, with Cuba, but there's also was a very, very... Uh, significant pushback from the old Cuban exile population in the United States. Um, I, I mean, I, if I'm going to be frank, I don't, in my view, I don't think political calculations, domestic political calculations should be informing our, how we pursue foreign policy, especially since oftentimes it limits what we can do. I mean, again, as I said, we have embargoed Cuba for 58 years and they haven't changed. And so, I mean, regardless of what you think about the country, like again with North Korea, with Venezuela, with Cuba, and with China, like regardless of like if you like them or you don't like them, your your domestic political views, I think you have to recognize that at times our policies aren't working, and that new ones have to be pursued. And, and again, being quite frank with Cuba, our policies weren't working. I, I, that's another one where I don't actually have much to say on it that I, you know, disagree with or could add. I, I think you kind of summed up that like, yeah, I mean, that's my stance on it as well. Well, I guess we've gone on for a while. So um, really want to thank you all for taking part in this discussion today on Biden v. Trump on foreign, just a bit uh, like of some of the foreign relations. Uh, Hope this will give you all of you listening at home some more information uh, to understand American foreign policy just a little bit better. And honestly, that's why we have Ethan on. <laughs> and of course, having Sam here, who was a much welcome addition. Uh, yeah. Thank you all so much. Any last words, anything just you want to get out of your system? Anybody? I just want to say thanks, Sam, for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, um, thank you guys for having me. It, uh, as I said before, it's nice to finally be able to talk about foreign policy without having to force it in there. Yes, we are glad. Like, there's always room for foreign policy on this show. Ethan is a permanent member of the panel. Like, so, yes, thank you so much for coming on today, Sam. And. You've been listening to a podcast-exclusive episode of The Review Squared. Have a wonderful whatever time you're listening to this after I edit it, which I will hopefully soon. Have a great one, folks. You've been listening to The Review Squared.
and the music you hear is by Springtide.